It is hard to believe that 103 sermons later we come to the last two verses in John's Gospel. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. We have sung about his glory. We have sung about looking into his face and, and, and seeing the face of Christ. And in reality, that's what John's purpose has been in this entire book, that we would see the glory of Christ. That in our lives daily, as we live them out in the world in all sorts of different circumstances, that we'd see his glory that we would see him at work, that would see him working in us and through us and, and, and using us to point men and women to the, to the one, the only one, who is the name above every name and who is the only name by which men and women can be saved. So it's a glorious expression of, of his deity as well as his humanity. It's a glorious exaltation of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second part of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, it is just a, it is a clear exaltation of His gloriousness, as well as showing the power of the Father in sending the Son, the power of the Son in redeeming a people for Himself, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit to apply that redemption to men and women's lives. I mean, we've seen that throughout this entire book. Now we come to these last two verses. And in one sense, strange verses they are. Hear the word as we read it. Two short verses, 24 and 25. Now this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the whole world itself would not contain the books that would be written. It's funny because if you take this as being John's words written at the end of this book, you have John saying, okay, now this is the disciple who is testifying these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's speaking in the third person away from himself while he's writing these books. It's pretty well accepted that these last two verses are kind of an addendum by those who were his disciples and those who were with him as he wrote this book, perhaps at Ephesus, perhaps the elders at Ephesus who who ministered with John and who came to faith through John and and were were discipled by John and taught by John. But, But he comes to this point of saying, I want you to understand that what this man is saying, he is saying because he's an eyewitness to what has taken place. He has seen those seven signs and and plus other things. He has seen and heard those seven great I am's where Jesus declared that he was God in the flesh. I I mean, they're saying, listen, everything this man has written is true. We've heard him. He's been with us. He's taught us this. He's written it down, and now we're giving it to you. You might say there's a stamp of authenticity by witnesses and of those around him that are added at the end of this book. Or, or as someone called it, a notary seal of that day being stamped on it. Saying, this is right, this is true, this is absolutely what has taken place and what has happened. And we want you to know that we've seen his life, John's life. We, we've heard him say what he has said, 
and we know that what he is saying to you is true. What in the world would it have been like to have been there and been taught by the one who was with the Lord in such an intimate, personal way? As a matter of fact, in one sense, the beloved disciple is being identified finally in these last verses, these last two verses. The beloved disciple who who humbly all the way through this book just kind of calls himself that. He never says, I, John, were there. He says, and the beloved disciple, the one who leaned on his breast, he was there and he saw this, but he never really took that ownership in a prideful sort of way that I'm the one who was there with the Lord. Just the beloved disciple was there with Peter. He saw the denial. He saw all the things that took place around Pontius Pilate. He saw the things that took place around cross he's written them down and we've seen that he's written them down it's not just something he's told us and somebody else went off and wrote it because of it it's not just some oral tradition John that beloved disciple that one who was with the Lord has written this down and we're testifying to all those who will read it from this point on all the way down to 2014 in Somerset Kentucky we are testifying that this is what this beloved disciple has written there, there are about three things there that they're wanting you to see that these, whoever wrote this, and I, I, I take it as inspired text, but as, an, as, as, a, as a clarification, as, a, as an authentication of what has been said, they, they want to first affirm that the man and the men who recorded the life and teaching of Jesus, in this case specifically John, were eyewitnesses to the events that took place. I love what John says in his first epistle, and Lord willing, at some point in 2015, we'll get to the, first, the, to the epistles of John to follow up this gospel of John as we, as we think about it in those terms. But as, he, as John begins writing that first epistle to those believers, this is how he starts it. This is what he says. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Kind of sounds a little bit like that prologue that I had Brother Scott read just a little bit ago in our scripture, hearing, hearing of the scripture. That prologue that we started at 103 sermons ago. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and John says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John started this gospel talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. John started this gospel, and we started it around Christmas time, 
a couple of years ago so that we could have that sort of cosmic Christmas experience. It was before the birth in the manger. It was before the life as a young child with with Joseph and Mary. It was before time ever began. It was before the foundation of the earth. God and the Father and the Son were there together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it was through that Word that He created everything that there is. John says, I want you to understand. I want you to understand that the glory of this one is not a glory that was somehow captured while he was on the earth. It was not a glory that somehow came about because one day he became so self-enlightened that he realized he was somebody special. It was a glory that existed before time began, and it's a glory that existed in John's day, and it's a glory that continues on in our day, and it's a glory that will continue for all eternity. That's what John's wanting us to see. That's what John is wanting us to grasp. That's the face that he wants us to gaze upon spiritually as we understand that his testimony is true. So, so these, whoever's writing these last verses, John no doubt is there with them, and they're saying, this man recorded the life and teaching of Jesus, and they are accurate. They are true. They're exactly as described. Second thing, these concluding verses of the gospel affirm that the author of the gospel is not only an eyewitness, but he actually wrote down these things. I alluded to that a moment ago. It's not just that we've heard about it, and it came through Joe to Sam and went on over to Tom, and, and somehow all of those got it, you know, kind of like the old game of telephone or telegraph where you repeat something in somebody's ear, and by the time it gets from one side to the other, it's all changed. And no, it's not something that's just been passed down orally. It's not something that's just been said, but this man John has written it down. This one who was there. This one who was in the presence of the Lord. He's written it for you. And because he recorded the life and teaching of Jesus, because he was there as an eyewitness, and because he wrote it down, they want you to understand very clearly in this that the one who has written these things is trustworthy. Their specific words are, we know that his testimony is true. We know that what he has said is absolutely true. That's what John says starting 1 John. He says, listen, I want you to know we touched him, we heard him, we ate with him, we fellowshiped with him, we were in his presence, we, we saw the miracles, we heard the teaching. And we're not trying to spin a yarn here for you. We're not trying to create something out of nothing. We are telling you who this one is. and He's unique. He's unlike any other prophet that ever walked on the face of the earth. He's unlike any other religious leader that ever founded, if you will, a religion. He's unlike anyone who ever spoke. As a matter of fact, even the, even the Jews, if you remember at one time, said, man, this man speaks with an authority unlike any of our teachers, unlike anybody we've ever heard before. This man has an authority that is unique. It's from the Father. It's from God it's himself. There, there was a uniqueness recognized even by those who were his enemies. Even by those who wanted nothing to do with this whole matter of Messiah, Christ, with him being the one. Even though they saw the signs, they heard the teaching, they saw the authority with which he spoke. They wanted nothing about it, but even they had to admit that there was something unique about him. 
So John spends 21 chapters as we've broken them down. Remember, when it was written down, there were no chapters and no verses. John just wrote his history. He just wrote the history of what he saw. Acknowledging even earlier in chapter 20, in verse 30, said there were many other signs which Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in these book, in this book. John says, listen, I didn't write everything down. I've been selective. I've had a purpose. I could have told you about a lot of other things that he did, but I didn't. There was just not enough room and not enough place, not enough time. And in verse 31, he says, but listen, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That ought to be our testimony to our world today, folks, to our pluralistic our, our, our kind of multicultural religious world that we live in where everybody says, oh, well, you know, you can't just have one way to God. You, you really can't just have, have this idea that there's only one way. There's a lot of other people from a lot of other cultures and a lot of other backgrounds, and, and they too have their way to God. And so Jesus might be a way to God. He might even be the best way to God among all the others, but he's not the only way. John is saying here, I want you to understand, I want you to understand with absolute clarity that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and it's only in believing in him that you can have eternal life. It's only believing in him that you may have life. His name is a powerful name that supersedes everything else. John says you've got to grasp that. That's what he was saying in chapter 1 when he said, listen, in him was the life and the life was the light of man. That's what he meant in chapter 1 when, when, when John recorded the, the whole fact that we saw him, we saw his glory we, as of the only begotten of the Father, and in him was full of grace, and he was full of truth. He came not to just tell us about God, he came to demonstrate God. He came not to just point us to a source of truth, but he came to say, I possess the truth. Indeed, later he will say, I am the truth the way, the truth, and the life, and one of those great I am statements. John weaves this together in such a way that there should be no doubt that this one is the one who has come from God, that has been promised by the prophets, that was promised as far back as the garden, right after the fall, that all of history, especially Israelite history has been looking forward to, has been anticipating, has been longing for over and over and over again. And yet when he came to his own, John says, he came to those who have said for generation after generation after generation, that's who we want to see, that's who we want to have, that's who we want to experience, that's who we ought to know. They rejected him because he didn't live up to what their expectations were. He didn't meet what they thought it ought to be. He didn't come riding in on a white horse. He came in a manger in a very poor town with, with at least from human perspective, questionable parentage. And they were not ready to accept the fact of him being born of the virgin, although their own prophet had said it would happen. They were not ready to see that he was in this world by the very work of God and no other. John says, I want you to see that. I want you to understand that. But I want you to see that the evidences for him being the Christ are so great. They're, they're so overwhelming that I'm, I'm writing these things so you may believe. 
and believing you may have life. You remember those signs that he did, that John recorded? Again, not everything he did, not every miracle he did, but he turned the water into wine. All the way back in chapter 2, when he came to that wedding feast and the, they had served the wine, they ran out of wine, and, and, uh, and, and Jesus you know, was asked to do something by his mother, and he said, it's not my time yet, but he did go ahead and do it. And he turned the water into wine, thus showing that the old was about to give way to the new. The old covenant was about to give away to a new covenant that would be sealed in his blood, that the wine that he made there would become the symbol of that blood in the Last Supper as he met with those disciples in the upper room. He turned the water into wine, saying it's going to go from, from water, which was out of the pots of, of the ritual cleansing, the ritual washings, into the new wine of the new covenant that is the best there ever was. I know Baptists think he turned the wine into water, but it was the other way around, okay? Remember that. He turned the water into wine. First sign. Second sign, he healed the nobleman's son from a distance. Didn't even go there, didn't touch him, didn't say anything to him, but he, but he showed his power to, to, to supersede even the, the elements, even the, the geography of the day. He didn't have to be there. That he was the Lord of everything. He healed a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, which had been crippled there for 38 years. And, and from, a child, from birth, from childhood. And he said, he looked at him and simply said, pick up your mat and walk. He healed him, indicating power over any illness, even perpetual, lifelong illness. He fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. And then talked about being the bread of life. He took those little loaves and those little fishes and he blessed them and he broke them and he passed them about. And then they filled up 12 baskets after it was over with. And, and the people were amazed. Matter of fact, amazed so much they followed after him and they said, do it again. Feed us again. We like that. We don't have to work for it. This is the ultimate welfare program. Hey, we want you to go with us wherever we go and feed us this way over and over and over again. But when he stopped feeding them, they went away. They merely wanted their bellies filled. They weren't really looking for the bread that brought eternal life, the bread that, 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 that quenched eternal hunger and hunger for the living God. They just wanted to have their physical bread for their physical bodies. Then he walked on water. In chapter 6, verses 15 through 21, and, and again, showed his power over the natural elements, that, that water was no problem for him. Even let Peter walk out to him. Come on out, join me. And Peter came until he noticed the waves and thought about the circumstances and realized this is not natural. He began to sink, and Jesus reached down and picked him up and rescued him. He knew the blind man in chapter 9. The man had blind since birth. And, and the disciples looked at him and said, Lord, tell us, who, who, who's the cause of this blindness? Is it because he sinned or is it because his parents sinned? Is, it, is he being punished for his parents' sin or is he being punished for his own sin? And Jesus said, listen, you don't get it. This man's not blind because his parents committed a specific sin or he committed a specific sin. This man is blind from birth for the glory of God to be manifested. The glory of God to be seen. And sure enough, he healed him. And the people were astonished. And the, the leaders wanted to get rid of him. 
because that was just too much. They knew that the prophets had said that the real mark of Messiah was he would heal the blind. He would give sight to the blind. And, and they wanted him out of the way along with Jesus. And then that seventh sign when he walked up to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. whom he had stayed away for four days and Lazarus had been four days. And, and he walked up and he looked at him and he said, roll away the stone. And my favorite line in all scripture, but you have to say it in King James, the sister says, the sister of Lazarus says, Oh Lord, by now he stinketh. We don't want to roll that away. It's going to smell really bad. He's decaying. After all, it's four days now. His spirit's departed, Lord. There's nothing you can do. And they must have surmised that he just wanted to pay his last respects. Much like we do at a visitation when we go before a funeral. Let's just go and pay our last respects. And Jesus was back to say to Lazarus, Sorry, old boy. Sorry I couldn't be here for you. He rolled back the stone and he didn't walk in the tomb. He merely shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! The one who had died four days earlier came forth, all wrapped up in his embalming clothes, grave clothes, and he came to the he worked his way probably very slowly, very meticulously, very awkwardly to the opening of that tomb and there he stood and Jesus looked around and said what are you doing get his grave clothes off they're not what he needs now loose him and let him go release him from that which binds him and each of those seven signs showing I am the bread of life I am the light of the world giving sight to the blind showing that he was the he was the one who was the resurrection, the life. And no matter who dies, if they're in him, they will live forever. They will never really feel fully, completely, spiritually die. They will be in Christ forever. And then, of course, there was the greatest sign, which John doesn't really call a sign because he was so captivated by it and probably so denying it before it took place. And that's the resurrection of Christ himself. Three days in the tomb after, the, after a horrible and horrific crucifixion. And he, and he came forth. He came forth from the grave. And, and he wasn't bound in grave clothes like Lazarus was. He left them behind, laying behind. He just left them there and got out of there. He was raised for all time. And each of those signs, supporting each of those I am sayings, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am the preexistent nature of him in chapter 8. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. I am the resurrection, the life in chapter 11 around Lazarus' tomb. And in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Peter picked up on that theme in Acts chapter 4 when he was preaching. And he said in Acts 4.12, he said, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter said, listen, this is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the one who gives life. This is the one in whom we must have faith, we must believe in, we must trust in. We must, as he said to John and and Peter, in, in this last part of chapter 21 in John's gospel, follow me. You'll not have life by trying to keep the Ten Commandments. You'll not have life by trying to be a good person. John wants you to see that. 
you'll not have life by saying, oh, well, I live by the golden rule. You know, Jesus said that after, after all. It was Jesus who said, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Isn't that the essence of what it means to live? John would say, no, you can't even begin to do that. Just like you can't even begin to keep the Ten Commandments. You can't even begin to live by your own rules and standards. You cannot be what you think is necessary to be right with God. It's only in Him. John spoke to Nicodemus and said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, whoever puts faith in Him, whoever trusts in Him, whoever follows Him, will have eternal life. Oh, listen, those, those religious leaders sure thought they were going to get eternal life. They tried hard. They observed every jot and tittle that they could of the law. And if they thought the law wasn't strong enough, they made it stronger, made up some new ones and said, we'll show God, we'll live by this and we'll do our best. So much that Paul said in the, to the Philippian Christians, listen, I, I, I live by the law. I was, I was a Pharisee. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And as to the righteousness that is found in the law, I was found blameless. Nobody could point a finger at me and say, oh, you know old Paul, he's a hypocrite. Old Paul, he, we, we caught him one day doing that which he ought not be doing. Paul said, nobody could point to me as to righteousness which is found in the law I was found blameless in the sight of men. But when I met Christ, the same Christ John is talking about, the same Christ that John is pointing to, the same one that Paul on the Damascus Road, when I was found by Christ, all that stuff, all that law, all that legalism, all that Pharisaism, all that trying to please God, all that trying to look good before men as though I am such a good person, all of that, even all the riches I had as a religious leader, all of that became like garbage, like trash. Some of you just throw out. Because I found a new righteousness that is not of my own, I found a new righteousness that is by imputation from Christ. I found a new righteousness that is in faith in Christ. It's a righteousness, Paul said, that is from God. Not on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith. So John is saying, listen, this is what I want for you. This is what I want you to discover. This is what I want you to learn. I want you to see that righteousness is only found in Christ, only found in this unique one, only found in this one who said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. And on and on and on. Until finally down in chapter 15, he says, I'm the true vine. And you're the branches. If you have faith in me, you become a part of the vine, you become a branch on the vine, and as, as a good vine produces through a healthy branch, you'll bear much fruit in me. What a, what a glorious statement our Lord makes. Some have called John the, the theological gospel. 
Some have called John the most mystical gospel. I think if you were to be able to ask John, what kind of gospel were you trying to write? He would just simply say, a gospel. Good news. The best news. That the one who existed with the Father before the world was ever created became man. Took on flesh. And he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. You see, all other religions say, let me show you something. Let me tell you something. There is a God out there. Let me tell you about him. But he's, he's so transcendent. He's so out there that he, he can't come near. And you can't get near to him. And John says, I want you to understand this one who's a part of the Godhead was out there. He is transcendent. He is unlike we are in so many ways, in every way that you can imagine. But this God, this God condescended to you and me. He came and he dwelt. He dwelt among us. He lived among us. The literal translation of that is he tabernacled, he pitched his tent right here with us. He's not just a transcendent God, he's an eminent God, he's a close God. He's a God who loved us so much that he came and lived among us in human form that we might see him. And through John and through Peter and through the other disciples who have recorded the truths of, of what took place, we can hear him. We might be able to touch him physically, but, but through understanding where they were, we can touch him spiritually. We can, we can have him change our lives. If you believe. What does it mean to believe? Well, according to Scripture, it means that you, you confess with your mouth that he's Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You say, well, who's that for? It's for whoever does it. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, and we know that's by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus made that clear in John chapter 6 and John chapter 10. If you proclaim that, man, you will be saved, Paul says in Romans. What does it mean to follow me? He's not on the earth now in a physical sense. You can't follow Jesus in the body as Peter did and John did and the other disciples did. What does it mean to follow me? It means to see his body is manifest through his church and follow him in obedience of being a part of a body and, and uniting together as the body of Christ on this earth as part of the branches who are, who are attached to the vine and abiding in him and living by him and trusting in him and, and worshiping him and spending time with his body. John's, John will say later in John in 1 John, you know, one of the marks of a believer, one of the marks of a person who really has followed Christ is they love the brethren. They love the church. They love those who are their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they give their lives to minister to one another and minister alongside of one another for the glory of God and the exaltation of Christ in our world. 
John says, I want you to see who he is. I want you to know what I'm telling you is true. I made this up. This is not some esoteric religion that I've come up with and I want to kind of wow you with it. I just want to tell you what it was like. I just want to tell you what he did. I just want to tell you what he said. And I want to tell you it's true. I want to tell you it's authentic. I want to tell you there's no hint, no hint of untruth in it. Maybe a little bit of hyperbole in that last verse. You know, and and that last verse says, and there were so many other things that Jesus did, so many. I suppose that if they were all written down, even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Maybe a little hyperbole there. But hyperbole for a point. That for those three and a half years that he ministered, everything he did, everything he said, everything he was involved in could not be captured. Could not be captured in a book. Boy, those things that we have told you selectively under the influence and under the authority and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's all you need to know to believe. And I've written this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life. Boy, I appreciate Frank's words when he came up to pray the offertory prayer this morning. He said, man, read that first part of John, especially John 1.1. Find out that Jesus didn't have his beginning in a, in a manger. He may have in his human form in a manger in Bethlehem, but Jesus Christ was preexistent. You know, no other religious leader even dared claim that. Nor did they claim to be resurrected from the dead. Nor did they claim to have their authority directly from God other than in some kind of a a little angelic visit or something. John says, Jesus spoke the truth not because he learned the truth, not because somebody pointed him to the truth. He spoke the truth because he is the truth. And all who trust him will have eternal life. We spent the first five weeks of our Wednesday nights going through another gospel, uh, through, going through gospel boot camp, talking about what is the gospel. The youth did it, we did it as adults. What is the gospel? How to recover the gospel in our day, how to live the gospel, how to speak the gospel. It's just what John's done. It's just what John's done in this book. He's saying, listen, look to Christ. Don't look to yourself. Don't try to do it yourself. Recognize that he is your righteousness. Even as Paul said to the Corinthian Christians, he who, became, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God.
He who knew no sin took on our sin that we who know no righteousness might become righteous in his sight through his Son. Do you know him? And if you know him, have you shared him with somebody? Have you told him about this unique one who is unlike any other person that's ever lived or ever will live? Or even ever could live? Do you know him? That's really what John wants to know. It's really why he went to all this trouble. Let's pray. Holy Father, he's saying that song just before this message, Speak, O Lord. Father, we know that you speak by your Holy Spirit through your word. We know, O Lord, that your word is truth, both in the incarnate word, Jesus, and in the written word, the scripture. Father, we ask you right now to speak. I ask you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to draw men and women who may be in this room this morning and don't know you to faith in Christ. And I ask you, Father, to work in the hearts of those who do know you. Bring renewal, revival, Lord, a new joy. John says, I'm writing these things that our joy may be made complete. I, I want us to be filled up with the joy of Christ. Lord, may we know that joy. Whether we're facing difficult times like David in Psalm 88, or whether we're, we're facing trouble at work, or whether we're trace, facing trouble at home, or, or Lord, at school, wherever we might. Lord, let us know your joy that will, will help us overcome those circumstances. Speak, O Lord. Calm us. Excite us. Save us. Do your work, Lord, in your way. I pray in Jesus' name.